0: In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews leadership preparedness expert and author Eric McNulty. Here's a snippet from their conversation. Would you mind talking about the emotional basement briefly? Sure, absolutely. So the emotional basement, and others have called it the amygdala hijack or reptilian brain, it's an instinctual response we have to threat as humans, and it's it's that freeze-flight-fight response. So whenever you are faced with a threat, your brain perceives it, goes into survival mode, and you go through a sequence of freeze- flight-fight. Uh, and that's what we call the emotional basement. And you can get stuck there. When you're there, you're only in survival mode, so you are reacting as if your life is under threat. And if you're life truly isn't a threat, that reaction will be very, very helpful because it'll make you run faster. It'll make you decide faster. You'll just go because your brain's in survival mode. But the same chemical reaction that allows you to do all that good survival stuff preempts you from doing higher level thinking. So you're not taking time to weigh different options or do a rational analysis of what's in front of you. You're just reacting. And in most crises, because most of our crises are not life-threatening, uh, you need to respond, not react. And so the process of getting out of the basement, which is doing something at which you can demonstrate self-competence so three deep breaths is the easiest one i know counting to 10 uh singing your school fight song i don't care what it is we call it a trigger script but doing something you know how to do will tell your brain okay we're not in we're not in a life-threatening situation we can turn off that freeze slight fight response
1: well hello there and welcome to
0: paid by the word a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you.
1: Hi, my guest today is Eric J. McNulty, a writer, speaker, and educator who specializes in crisis leadership. Eric is the Associate Director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He is also an instructor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Eric is a co-author of You're It, a nonfiction book about leadership in times of crisis and transformation. The book offers uniquely detailed accounts of crises and disasters, such as the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, the Boston Marathon bombings, and Superstorm Sandy. Eric is also founder and chief provocateur of the Elephant Wisdom Project, an organization dedicated to raising funds for elephant conservation. I began our conversation by asking
0: Eric to tell us about the Elephant Wisdom Project and how it came about. Thanks, Mike. It's been a, an interesting outgrowth of the work that I do. And when I've been looking at, at leadership and, and organizational behavior and those kind of issues, the two places I always look are, for, to better understand complex systems are cities and nature. Because those, to me, are the, the ultimate complex systems. I learned a lot there. So cities will be a different conversation. But but nature is one, and it's my real passion around environmentalism, is to understand the, the role of keystone species. And elephants are one of those species that if they were not there, the entire African savanna ecosystem would collapse for a big, long explanation. But the the point is that if we live in a world where elephants can't thrive, we're not going to thrive long either. And so what I'm trying to push through the Elephant Wisdom Project is for people to take a broader view to understand this larger, wonderful, magical system we're part of called life and all the interdependencies in it, and that we can no longer uh, treat this planet, do business, live our lives as if we're separate from that and can z- exist without it. We actually have to understand we're part of it. And so my work to the Elephant Wisdom Project is both to, uh, it raises money for elephant conservation, which I do for all my speaking fees, a portion of it goes there, uh, but also just to try and build this awareness of systems thinking, of looking at the interdependencies, looking at that bigger, broader picture, to uh, better understand how we can live in a way that is, is will let us perpetuate the good things we have for future generations. Wow. So the, the elephants kind of serve as a living
1: metaphor uh, and a, and a lovely metaphor for the, uh, for your, your approach to this, which is a systems approach, which I'm a, a major fan of.
0: Yes. The, the wonderful thing about elephants is pretty much everyone loves them. Yeah. You know, they're big, that, that, Charismatic megafauna, as they call them. So it makes it very easy for people to identify with it and, and ask questions like, what's the Elephant Wisdom Project? So if you want to talk about systems theory, people's eyes roll back in their head and they run for the doors. Uh, but talk about elephants, everyone's interested. <laughs> That's great.
1: That's Thank you. So Eric, uh, please describe your typical work day and uh, which professional habits have you found especially helpful?
0: Uh, it, it's interesting. I wish I had two days that were the same, and certainly it's been different during COVID. Um I tend to write um, either sort of, I find late morning and then late afternoon to be good times for me to, to do my writing. I like to get organized first thing in the morning and I've got my little my little book where I write down what I am going to do and what my, my appointments are and just sort of get my head around what the day is going to contain. And then I need to carve out some space uh, to be able to write or edit. And those are very different processes. And, but these days I'm, I'm doing an enormous amount of Zoom. So talking to you, I've got my meetings are on Zoom. When I'm speaking, we're on Zoom. When I'm teaching, we're on Zoom. So... So it's been a lot of, uh, you know, and there has been learning to take a break and unplug and get back and, and just sort of, you know, stretch and go outside and go for a walk, those kind of things. Um, I think what I miss in, in this time, I used to get a lot of really long airplane rides. I had to fly 150,000, 200,000 miles a year because of speaking and teaching. And that time in the airplane was great for reading, for writing, for no email. Uh, That nice person who works for the airline comes by and offers you a cup of coffee. To me, it was a delightful few hours in isolation uh, before having to come back into the world. So so it's been a matter of adapting daily routines to remain productive.
1: I can definitely relate to that. I, I miss that uh, that cocoon aspect that the uh, airplanes provided. <laughs> Although I'm not, uh, I, I don't feel that I'm likely to get back on one
0: anytime soon. It's safer than you think. We just did a project on that, so uh, you can people can look up the Harvard uh, Aviation Public Health Initiative and see the actual science. It's pretty safe once you're on the airplane. The airport. <laughs> it's a little bit dicier at the moment. But once you're on the airplane itself, the air is pretty clean, and you're in pretty good shape as long as everyone's wearing a mask.
1: Oh, that's good to know. Okay, seriously. Yeah, it really is. Uh, yeah, that I'm is serious. That. Yeah, good. Good to know. Uh, so here's a, a question that I ask all writers. Uh, can you tolerate noise when you write or do you need a quiet place to
0: work? You know, I actually love ambient noise when I write. I need it. Um, So I'm sort of the classic cafe writer. I will love to go sit in the coffee shop and write there. It's just the right level of noise around me and a bit of stimulation. I have to edit. In silence, and there I really need intense focus. But when I'm writing, I often I actually my writing for me is a fairly fast process because I do a lot of I do a lot of processing in my brain while walking around. If I've got an idea for a column or I'm working on a chapter in a book, I do a lot of walking and then I let my unconscious brains put things into a rough order. And then when I sit down to actually put words on a page, um, I do like some distractions. Being able to look up every you know few minutes and see something other than my wall or or uh, you know my desktop. It, it to me is really helpful. I need that stimulation.
1: That's really great, and I'm also so happy that you brought up this uh, the idea of kind of inventing the uh, inventing the prose in your mind before you actually sit down to write. Uh, I know I do the same thing. Uh, and I remember when I was writing music, I would, I would listen to the music in my head long before I, I wrote it down, uh, and, or even played it. And, and I think there is something to that. It's like, you know, um, I've heard that great artists, uh, great, you know, painters will kind of uh, hallucinate uh, onto a, uh, an, an empty canvas or onto an empty piece of paper, and then, and then sketch out. Or actually, <laughs> over, which uh, which actually makes complete sense because we we do something very similar to that when we write. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Thank you.
0: Well, it's it, you know it's I, I've done a lot of, of study of neuroscience related to the leadership work, and part of what we learned through that is that we know we have an enormous amount of. Uh, Subconscious computing power in our brains. I mean, most of our our activity, thinking activity, is subconscious. So when you actually step back and let your brain do its job and give it the space to do its job, it does an amazing things. So that's why for me, walking outside or going for a walk downtown, it gives the brain a chance to organize the thoughts in, a, in ways and find patterns that I might not see if I'm just staring, kind of fighting at the, uh, fighting with the keyboard. Yeah,
1: there is this, uh, I think, uh, false uh, assumption that uh, that you're writing at the
0: keyboard, but really you're writing before, and then you're at the t- keyboard you're typing. Right, right, and and again, I, I, maybe it's again the way I started I, my career was as a copywriter, and so that was you know the, the copy chief saying, "Hey, I need 150 words on bed linens by three o'clock. Go." Um, <laughs> it was very deadline driven and you kind of had a process quickly and, and go um so that's why i think the, the putting the words in order on the page um i've built that that muscle memory in, in my head i be able to do that relatively quickly but it's getting the ideas right and, and the sequence and, and the uh, making the thought flow and the story coherent that's the piece that takes uh, takes a bit more work wow you're up in boston right yes i am so that's a great that's a great walking town Absolutely, it's we're very. I'm very lucky to have many places to walk either. Again, I have nature nearby. I've got the bustle of the city nearby, and either one of those things can be good on the right day. Fantastic. So, which writers do you turn to for inspiration? Um, you know, in terms of nonfiction, which is most of what I what I write now, and certainly what I get paid to write. Um, Michael Lewis is someone I look to regularly. I think is brilliant, taking a really complex story and making it so compelling. Um, he's done it over and over. Everyone knows Moneyball, and but his whole range of books. Mm. He does a really good job with that, I think. Uh, Eric Larson is someone else, and he writes historic nonfiction. Um, Devil in the White City, I think, is his best-known book. But again, he's written several. I just read a book called Splendid in the Vile about Winston Churchill's first year as Prime Minister. Uh, and again, of getting the details right, of making the prose really flow, uh, and it, the story just it, it just sort of leaps off the page. And to me, that when uh, you know in fiction, you're obviously focused on story, but when you're writing nonfiction, story is just as important, and it, it isn't just it's of just the facts, ma'am bang it out thing i write columns for you know strategy and business and hbr and elsewhere that um you really got to get the hook you got to get the, you know, it's got to it's got to grab the reader make sense to them sort of give them a reason to keep reading and uh, and i think the two of them do a great job of sort of making it making you want to dig into a subject you may, never would have thought you were interested at all but boy by the time you're three pages in you're hooked for the entire entire book excellent excellent this is so uh it's it's it's
1: actually very comforting hearing uh <laughs> hearing other writers talk uh, you know there's that tendency to, to think oh it's just me uh, but uh so this is uh, this is a real blessing eric thank you uh you can you can send me can send me an invoice when we're done uh, so let's talk about your book now uh, please tell us about your it Set the stage, please, and tell us how the book began.
0: So URIET is a compendium of almost 20 years of of research and experience at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard. They've been around since 2003. I joined them in 2008. And there we do work on leaders in crisis situations. Um, So terror attacks, bombings, pandemics, uh, corporate crises. uh, But when things go really bad, th- those who are in leadership positions, what helps them get through it and get to a good good outcome, what trips them up and gets them into a bad outcome? And then we're trying to transfer that. and we had done that up until the point of the book, um, through teaching, through speaking, and through academic articles, which really nobody wants to read. Um, but we were we said, okay, how do we get this to a broader audience? And so that's where the idea of putting us into a more popular book was 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 born. Uh, so you it's a classic trade book. you can find it on the bookshelf at your local bookseller. If they're open, um, but really trying to bring together, you know, it was not just the concepts, but the but the stories, and then some practical tools, and bringing that together. So you say, okay, here's how you think about it, here's how you do it, and here's some examples of people who've done it well, and walk through some, you know, again, we walk through uh, the Boston Marathon bombing response, uh, through Deepwater Horizon, uh, uh, Superstorm Sandy, and you know, and part of the research we do is is very field-based. So I was you know, I was in the Gulf during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill with the Coast Guard and with FEMA seeing what happened, with Boston Marathon bombing, talked to three dozen or so people from the governor down to first responders and people, members of the general public who were there that day. Superstorm Sandy, I was was deployed with their field innovation team. The first time they put put a field innovation team out there and spent several days with them. So, you know, we tried to make this book one that was not an academic tome, but also not just a collection of anecdotes, but actually tried to thread the needle of, here's stories you'll find interesting and useful, here's some tools and ways of thinking about things that will be practical and uh, applicable in the average reader's life, uh, be it at business or at home or in the community. And so that's what we set out to do. We hope we've succeeded, uh, and, and it was it was great fun to pull it all together. And the inter- I always love the interview process. I always love going out and interviewing new people for whatever I'm writing. And uh, so some of these stories we knew well, and others we sought out to illustrate certain points. And that that was great fun. I,
1: I really enjoyed the book, uh, and I found it very exciting and suspenseful. Suspenseful, even though I, I knew how the stories ended. Uh, I also was. I I think people really love being caught up in the processes of solving big problems. And certainly these are these were, well, if they weren't large problems, there were certainly intense problems. Uh, actually, some of them were large problems, uh, large and intense. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I don't. I don't think you be, you begin to realize. Uh, it's funny. I was just yesterday talking with um, Peter Neffinger, who's one of the people who's in the book. He's on our faculty now, but he was uh, vice commandant to the Coast Guard, deputy national incident commander during Deepwater. That's who I spent time with, and he was describing the story of taking Anderson Cooper out over the spill in an airplane, which I also had the chance to do without Anderson Cooper, because um, Anderson Cooper was on every evening um, talking about what a terrible job the federal government was doing. And Peter said, you know, I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't change his narrative, but I could give it more nuance. And by taking him up and, and showing him the complexity of what was happening and the scale, which you couldn't see from shore because most of this was you know it was like seventy five miles offshore, a lot of the skimming and burning and things were going on. But to be able to see it from that perspective gives you a whole whole different idea. And so I think that as we watch any one of these incidents unfold on the news, you've got to realize there's a whole uh, panoply of of factors and stakeholders that these uh, people who are leading are, are are having to deal with simultaneously. So it's usually not that there isn't you know boy, there's a simple solution. Why don't they do it? It's much more complicated and complex than that. And so I hope the book gets across some of that. that these really are difficult dilemmas and there isn't like just, oh, if you only push that button, everything can be fine. No, there's a whole lot of other stuff before you can push that button that you have to figure out.
1: Well, again, I really, uh, I i don't know if enjoyed is the right word, but I, I got a lot out of the book uh, and I found it very, I found it exciting and compelling and uh, and, and riveting. So, and and particularly- uh, I'll send you
0: the invoice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a deal. We can. It's great. I'll uh, see the paper. Yeah. Uh, the the I think the main thing is uh, one of the things that I love about uh, what I'm looking for in a book is, is is the surprise. And the surprise here was the level of complexity and interaction and interrelatedness of you know. In other words, as you said, there wasn't a button to stop the uh, the oil spill. You know, and and there wasn't a button to uh, to to immediately make everyone whole after the, the Boston Marathon bombing. And so they you're right. These are problems that resist simple solutions. And they also um, have such a large emotional component that there's a tendency to just, you know, freak out, go from your gut, use your instinct. And, you know, when stuff like that is happening, those kind of instinctive responses are often not terribly helpful.
0: No, that's right, and I also think I hope people take away this an appreciation that those who are in in government as well as in in large corporations that we write about these aren't sort of stupid or evil people who are goofing off and not paying attention. They're actually working really hard trying to get to a good outcome. It just is a much harder job than than it can appear from the outside. so if we're sitting in the middle of a pandemic um. This is not as easy as it looks, and it doesn't look very easy right now. Um, but people hope will appreciate the amount of of uh, effort and attention that goes into trying to get to the best possible outcome.
1: Yeah, good. Hey, Eric, would you mind reading um, a page or two from your it?
0: Sure, be happy to. And um, this is from late in the book about timing and expectations, because I think it's actually very applicable right now as we're in this pandemic. Time presents the meta leader with one overarching imperative: avoid getting stuck in the now. Rather, see the arc of time in the past, present, and future, the variances in the was, the is, and the will be, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Everything eventually ends. Plan for it and how you'll bring the arc of time to its conclusion. Discern patterns. Anticipate how events and people evolve over time. Guide and influence that evolution. Can the pace be varied to either increase urgency or instill patience? Identify what can be done tomorrow that cannot be done today. Lest the situation deteriorate, prioritize what cannot wait and must be done now. People commonly remember the commitments that leaders make about the time with far greater specificity than their other promises. When arc of time reality falls short of those expectations, disappointment sets in and conflict may erupt. Shape and manage time expectations assertively. Use specifics within the hour or next Tuesday rather than vague terms such as immediately or soon, whose interpretation can vary wildly. Assume that everyone has a watch on a calendar and that they are calibrated differently. Consider how a leader used time in the 2010 mine disaster in Chile. The mine collapsed on August 10th, trapping 33 workers more than 2,000 feet underground. Once the workers signaled that they were alive, a delicate and complex rescue mission was begun. The collapse and subsequent rescue efforts attracted worldwide media attention. In similar situations, many politicians would be tempted to promise immediate results. We'll get them out as fast as we can. Chile's president, Sebastián Piñera, however, set expectations for a long operation. He declared they'd be out by a specific date, Christmas. The strategic use of time relieved some of the political and media pressure that would have come with a highly anticipatory daily rescue watch. Setting the expectations for late December bought time for both rescuers and the government. When Lost 33 were rescued and finally brought to the surface in October, there was widespread jubilation. They were safe. Wow. I just really, I'm
1: just so happy that you addressed these issues. Uh, I remember uh, hearing you speak uh, many years ago and you talked about uh, when a crisis you know, happens, when something, when there's a there's a huge cataclysmic event, people tend to crawl down into their emotional basement. Can you just yes. start? can you just briefly, I know it's not on the
0: list of questions, but would you mind talking about the emotional basement briefly? Sure, absolutely. So the emotional basement, and others have called it the amygdala hijack or reptilian brain, it's an instinctual response we have to threat as humans. And it's it's that freeze, flight, fight response. So whenever you are faced with a threat, your brain perceives it, goes into survival mode, and you go through a sequence of freeze, flight, fight. Uh, And that's what we call the emotional basement. And you can get stuck there. And when you're there, you're only in survival mode. So you are reacting as if your life is under threat. And if your life truly isn't a threat, that reaction will be very, very helpful because it'll make you run faster. It'll make you decide faster. You'll just go because your brain's in survival mode. But the same chemical reaction that allows you to do all that good survival stuff preempts you from doing higher level thinking. So, you're not taking time to weigh different options or do a rational analysis of what's in front of you. You're just reacting. And in most crises, because most of our crises are not life-threatening, you need to respond, not react. And so, the process of getting out of the basement, which is doing something at which you can demonstrate self-competence. so. Three deep breaths is the easiest one I know. Counting ten, uh, singing your school fight song—I don't care what it is—we call it a trigger script. But doing something you know how to do will tell your brain, "Okay, we're not—we're not in a life-threatening situation. We can turn off that freeze, fight, fight response, which brings you up out of the basement, and then you get into uh, being able to do the more complex problem-solving and, and figuring out what's happening and what you need to do about it."
1: I love yeah. the, sto- the story you told about the executive who, uh, when something awful was going on, and he, ha- he really had to get everyone to calm down. And he said, all right, I would like to begin by having everyone reboot their PC.
0: <laughs> yes. I, again, it's, it, it doesn't matter if it's the right thing to do, but let, making people do something they know how to do, it's, it is like rebooting a computer. So, it's right, reboot your PC, go make a cup of tea, You know, do something you know how to do. And that t- tells your brain, it's okay, we can stop panic mode and we can get back into more rational thinking mode and so again we've had a lot of, especially through the pandemic but it, but even before the pandemic a lot of work on mindfulness and and meditation and things and so there's a lot about box breathing and being able to you know, sort of in and out in a very measured way do three of those it takes you about 30 40 seconds that just that process of intentionally breathing in holding it breathing out that will reset your brain and pull you out of the basement uh, and your grandmother may have said, you know, when you're mad at somebody, count to ten before you say anything. That was the same. You know, you didn't know your grandmother was a neuroscientist, but she was. Um, but that's what it does. It it gives you that opportunity to calm down, so you're responding rather than reacting. And if you're leading, you want to be responding rather than reacting as often as possible. I mean, taking the time to be considered and intentional, even if it's only a few seconds to think, but so that you're not lashing out at somebody or making a stupid decision. Uh, unless there really is no time, take a little bit of time. You'll be better served by it.
1: I want to steer the conversation back to journalism for a moment, and, um, which is this idea that um, you were know, you just constantly observing and you're constantly allowing your environment to change you. A good journalist uh, you know, approaches every story with an open mind. And a good writer approaches the world with an open mind. and it's certainly you certainly are, are, you know have proved that with your uh, your career and your writing. So that's that's pretty nice. Um,
0: it's uh, you know it's a good point you make because it is it's so key. I mean I, I have found that the key to me is I, I get bored easily and if I get bored easily I think that's not good. Um, and I do love to constantly learn. So you know we have we write in the book about this notion of swarm intelligence or swarm leadership which came out of Swarm Intelligence, which is something in the animal kingdom where non-human species achieve complex social outcomes, but they don't have hierarchies and committees and task forces and all that stuff. And I knew about that because I'm a birder. Um, and so I get the chance to go explore like biology for what I do to see how it, it, that's like, I'm a kid in a candy store uh, or the neuroscience piece. Like, oh good, I get to go talk to brain scientists uh, and learn new stuff. And I think you're right. If you're going to write, um, you've got to have that open mind and that really that bringing in information from new sources and things, again, you thought you knew nothing, wanted to know nothing about. Um, but, but if you going with an open mind is always something to learn, and you'll find new patterns, and it helps you build a much more nuanced understanding of the world. And that's how you bring fresh insights to people. It's not just by going solely by going deep on a specialty. If you're going to write, you actually have to have some skills to go more general as well. <laughs> that's great. So, let's, uh, let's wrap up by, uh,
1: I, I'm going to throw, throw a question uh, from, uh, from left field. Is that a mixed metaphor? At any rate, here's a question from field What is your
0: favorite bird? Ooh, that is a good qu- question. Actually, my favorite bird is the red knot, which is a shorebird that has the longest migration on the planet. It actually goes every year from the Arctic to the Antarctic and back again. Uh, and any number of our shorebirds, if you're on the, you know, the Connecticut shore or Cape Cod or whatever, in Chesapeake Bay in the in the summertime, you see all these little shorebirds running around. Quite a number of them make these amazing migrations. Um, but the red knot in particular, and it's it's very dependent upon horseshoe crabs in Chesapeake Bay as part of its migratory pattern, because all the way down to Patagonia and down to Antarctica, but then comes north um, north in the spring and south in the summer. That is, uh, it's, a, it's an astounding bird for a little, you know, it's, it's not very big, a little red chest, and um, that's my favorite because I just love the story behind it.
1: That's that's wonderful. What a wonderful way to uh, to conclude our our conversation. I hate using the word end because that just sounds too final. But uh, We're hopefully,
0: just pausing it until next time we talk.
1: <laughs> yes, to be continued. <laughs> so uh, this has been marvelous. Thank you so much for your time and your energy and your insight. And again, I really enjoyed your it. Uh, and I'll read the whole title. So it's a uh, you are it. Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most by Leonard J. Marcus, Eric J. McNulty, Joseph M. Henderson, and Barry Dorn with a foreword by David Gergen. So good job. And uh, I look forward to, are you working on another book now?
0: Uh, I'm starting in early stages of, of a book to, uh, looking at um, a, leadership, a leadership model, not not meta-leadership, but not unrelated to meta-leadership, but specifically for uh, people in the environmental and conservation community, where you get a lot of scientists who get asked to run things and don't know how to actually run them, so they don't do a very good job, and or connect with a broader public. So, uh, I'm looking at, You uh, see, climate change is our big existential threat right now, and whatever I can do to help those who are really doing the hard work amplify their efforts, I want to be able to help do that.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, Eric, have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you so much. And I look forward to our next conversation. Take care. Be well. Thanks, Mike. It's always a pleasure talking with Eric because you never know where the conversation will go. If you're interested in learning more about Eric and his projects, please visit his website, ericmcnulty.com. Until next time, enjoy, stay safe, and be well.
0: That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.